Welcome to Envision Community Church's Ridiculous Love Podcast. Whether you attend our Longmont-based services or tune in online, we're so glad that you're here as part of our funky and fully affirming church today. We begin each of our podcasts just as we begin each of our services with our ethos. Married, divorced, and single here, it's one family that mingles here. Conservative and liberal here, we've all got to give a little here. Big and small here, there's room for us all here. Doubt and believe here, we all can receive here. LGBTQ plus and straight here, there is no hate here. Woman, non-binary, and man here, everyone can here. Whatever your race here, for all of us grace here. In imitation of the ridiculous love Almighty God has for each of us and all of us, let us live and love without labels. If you'd like to financially contribute to our church and our partners, you can text any amount to 84321. And now, on to this week's sermon. So we're starting out a study of the book of Romans. And every time we begin a Bible study, I always want to begin talking about both our church's hermeneutic and our church's exegetical method. And I can see you thinking, really, she's joking, right? No, let me explain what those words mean. Your hermeneutic is how you understand the Bible as a whole. How do you see the Bible? Your exegetical perspective is how you understand a specific verse or chapter of the Bible. So let's first look at our hermeneutic. How do we see the Bible overall? There are three basic views of scripture that abound in the world today. The first and most conservative perspective is that God wrote the Bible and even though 43 humans wrote out the words, God literally possessed them and move their hands to create the words God wanted to create. So if, in fact, you have this understanding of Scripture, no wonder, then, that these people also believe that the Bible is without error in its original copies, because it was written by God. So if the Bible says the world was created in six 24-hour days, it was. If it says that there was a flood and that Noah saved all the animals by putting them on an ark, he did. If the Bible says the world is 6,000 years old, then it was. Now, the ironic part about all of this is that we don't even have the original copies of Scripture. And second, the Scripture never claims this perspective for itself. But that is, in fact, the perspective of conservative forms of Christianity, Islam, and Judaism. And of course, with Islam, it's related to the Koran. There's a second hermeneutic, which is that the Bible is the inspired word of God. And I should say, within each of these three hermeneutics, there's an infinite number of additional perspectives. Go to seminary, you'll hear about all of them and have to repeat them on a test. But I hold to this second view that the Bible is the inspired word of God, but not probably a pretty far left perspective on that. Because what I see is 66 books written over 1,500 years by 43 different authors that hold together remarkably well. Rarely do they disagree with each other, and often they contradict and speak against the patriarchal culture of the day, instead focusing from Genesis through Revelation on bringing about reconciliation and equality throughout the earth. Now, yes, there are plenty of times, as we talked about last week, where they do, in fact, 
delve into the realm of the cultures at large that is not a healthy way. But to me, it is remarkable that these 66 books written over 1,500 years hold together like that. So I would say that in that regard, it is inspired. The third perspective would be the perspective that says the Bible is just another book among any history book written by the winners and focused only on the winners and not, not on those who were oppressed by the winners. So basically, it's just a book. Why do we even pay attention to it? So we take a look at that middle perspective, that it is, in fact, inspired words that has instruction for how we live our lives. So now we move on to how do we look at specific passages of Scripture. We use five different rules around here. First, we look historically. What's the historical context of the passage? Second, we look contextually. What is the context of the passage? Did you know the Bible says curse God and die? Is that an instruction for you to curse God and die? Actually, that's the wife of Job after he's had all of the afflictions that were placed upon him by God. And it's the wife of Job saying, really, seriously, you're still going to worship that God? Curse the God and just die. So context is extremely important. We also want to understand what scripture says comparatively. And here there are tens of thousands of verses of scripture. It's going to be relevant tonight. Exactly six deal with gay issues. Three of those are in the Old Testament. The Old Testament is not written for us. It's for the Jewish people. So only three of those are focused on us. One of those and the most damaging we'll be looking at tonight. So comparatively, the question you always want to ask is, if the Bible is teaching something weird, which it does, the final question you want to gauge it by is, did Jesus talk about this? Did Jesus say anything about this subject? Did Jesus ever say homosexuality was wrong? No. Did Jesus ever say gay relationships were wrong? No. Jesus actually never said anything about being gay, period. Interestingly, he did talk about being trans. You know, which I think is kind of cool because he talks about both there are those who were made eunuchs, and that's slaves who were castrated, and those who were born that way, now, which is, many people feel like, probably talking about a people who are, in fact, transgender, but very definitely, unquestionably, talking about intersex people. And, of course, Jesus speaks about them in very, very positive ways. So when you're studying comparatively, and you see something the Bible says it seems a little bit weird, what did Jesus say on the subject? And if he said nothing, that's a reason to be suspicious about the other passage. The fourth rule is to study the Bible according to the syntax, according to the grammar of the day. And the Bible did not have paragraphs or sentences. And so one major teaching of all of conservative Christianity comes out of a paragraph being started in the wrong place. In the fifth chapter of Ephesians, the paragraph should begin... Husbands and wives be subject to one another as you follow Christ. Okay, I like that. Unfortunately, that's not where they began the paragraph. They began the paragraph, wives be subject to your husbands because the husband is the head of the wife as Christ was head of the church. And so now we've had 2,000 years of people saying men are the heads of families and supposed to make the decisions of families. Well, actually, no. We're to respect one another and be subject to one another out of our respect for Christ. That's 
where the paragraph should have started. So we study syntactically, and we also study linguistically according to the meanings of words. So let's stick with that same passage. The Bible does say, wives be subject to your husbands. And then it says, husbands love your wives. The term love that's used here is a term of far deeper, far greater subjection than the term subject. So what the writer, Paul in this case, is saying is, guys, you need to submit to your wives more than your wives need to submit to you. But that's missed because we don't look at the meanings of those words. People look at submit or subject and look at love and they don't see them as the same thing. The other is the passage right there in that same book that says, for the husband is the head of the wife as Christ was head of the church. If the Bible wanted to tell us that the men are in charge of the family, it would have not used the word it used for head. It would have used the term archon, which means ruler of, head of, like the CEO of a corporation or the chair of a corporation. The Greek word archon, that's not the word that was used, it's the Greek word kephale. And kephale means point of origin of. And again, studying historically, in the time that it was written, the understanding was that, of course, in a patriarchal culture, who generates life? It is, in fact, the seed of a male that generates life. And in that regard, they saw the husband as the source of the family, the beginning of the family through the husband's seed. So you have to follow all five of these rules, and we'll be looking with all five of these rules tonight on the first and second chapters of the book of Romans. And we're going to take us straight to the issues that exist. Paul is writing to the church in Rome around 55 AD. He's going to Spain after he goes to Rome, and he's letting them know he's coming. And I said last week, wrongly, that it was a book written to people that were not having trouble within their church. I always go back and look at my sermons later and realized what I should have said was, in comparison to the church at Corinth and the church at Galatia, which I had just talked about last week, they actually were dealing with an issue. The Jewish Christians were expecting Gentile Christians to follow Jewish laws. What kinds of laws? Oh, like, you know, all men being circumcised. So, you know, you can see why there would be a lot of Gentile Christians saying, really? But the Jewish Christians were saying, yes, yes, you have to follow all 613 of the Jewish laws as well as the teachings of Jesus. And so Paul deals with this in the first eight chapters of the book of Romans. Let's take a look at the first chapter about halfway through. Romans 1, beginning with verse... 24. Therefore, God gave them over to their sinful desires, the desires of their hearts, to sexual impurity, for the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie, and worshipped and served created things rather than the Creator, who should be forever praised. Because of this, God gave them over to shameful lusts. Even their women exchanged natural relations for unnatural ones. In the same way, the men also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed indecent acts with other men and received in themselves the due penalty of their perversion. Furthermore, since they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, he gave them over to a depraved mind to do what ought not to be done. 
They have become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, and depravity. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, and malice. They are gossip, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, and boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. They are senseless, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Although they know God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death, not only do they continue to do these very things, but they approve of others who practice them as well. Oh, my goodness. Really? This is a religion of love? Love God? Love neighbor? Love self? This is an angry man telling everybody what's wrong with them. And of course, what jumps out to us is he seems to be speaking against gay relationships. Few things to understand there. Historically, what was their understanding of gay relationships at the time? The only public understanding of gay relationships at the time in the entire Roman Empire was relationships of men with boys. Men with boys is pedophilia and isn't acceptable anytime, anyplace, anywhere. That's the only kind of gay relationship that was understood at the time. The concept of consensual gay relationships, not something that was understood in the culture of the day. So that's not what he's talking about there. Then he also says they gave up that which was natural to them. And what does that word mean? It means that which was natural to them. And if we take a look at the Bible as a living, breathing document, then we will continually reinterpret the Bible according to understanding of the day. And of course, our understanding of the day is there is such a thing as sexual identity. There is such a thing as gender identity. These were not things that were understood in that time. And when it comes to one's sexual identity, there is a sexual identity that is natural to you. It might be straight sex. It might be homosexuality. It might be gay. It might be lesbian. It might be bi. It might be asexual. Your sexual identity is your sexual identity, and it is, in fact, utilizing this word correctly, natural to you. So what he's saying is, you really should be in a relationship that's natural to your sexuality. And you say, but what if you don't know what your sexuality is yet? Okay, you can figure it out. There's nothing in that passage that says you cannot explore and figure out your sexual identity. But if you understand your sexual identity, the suggestion is it's probably a better thing to be true to your sexual identity. Why? Because we have only one moral code in the Bible from Jesus. Every decision we make is put against three questions. Can I do this and love God, which includes the universe, particularly the planet? Just saying. Can I do this and love my neighbor? And my neighbor is every human being with whom I come in contact. And can I do this and love myself? So if you are, in fact, a gay person and you're in a straight relationship, are you loving your neighbor, the person with whom you're in that relationship well? Are you loving yourself well? Probably not. It probably would be better for you to be in a relationship consistent with your sexual identity. If you're, in fact, straight, and you're involved in a gay relationship. Is that loving the other person? Is that loving yourself? Probably not. And even if you get into that relationship out of a sense of passion, is it a sustainable passion if it is in fact not consistent with your sexual identity? So what he is saying here is, it's appropriate 
for you to be in a sexual relationship based on your sexual identity because that is how you can best love the other person and feel passion for the other person and how you can best love yourself and feel passion for yourself. Now, a caveat. Let's say that you're in a marriage and you recognize that you're no, not sexually compatible. Well, I think there, there's a whole different set of questions to ask. What about your children? What about your finances? If you happen to live in Nigeria or Uganda, do you really want right now to be out as a gay person because likely you're going to lose your life? There are plenty of environments and circumstances in which you may stay in a relationship with someone who does not share your sexual identity, and that's fine. But on the whole, what he is saying here is that you should be involved in relationships with those who share your own sexual identity because that kind of passion is the passion that allows you to love the other best and to love yourself best. And those are the moral questions we're always asking. But there's one other thing that Paul is doing here that I can't say I like very much. But Paul uses it as a rhetorical method. There's a rhetorical method in which you get the people to whom you're speaking all stirred up, and then you switch gears. So what do I mean by that? Well, I happen to be a New York Mets baseball fan. I mean, a serious Mets baseball fan, season ticket holder for many, many years, decades, a season ticket holder. So let's say you have a whole bunch of Mets fans together, and we have a speaker who is, in fact, speaking about the Yankees. And the speaker says, the Yankees are the worst team in baseball. Now see, if you're a Mets fan, there are two favorite teams for you, the Mets and whoever is playing the Yankees. <laughs> so as soon as the person says the Yankees are the worst team in baseball, you're like, yeah, they're the worst team. They're the most expensive payroll. They lose year after year. Yeah, they lose year after year. They're not even 500 this year. They're 69 and 70. Yeah, they're not 500. They're in the last place in the American League East. Yeah, they're in the last place. Yeah, we hate them. Their fans are the worst in America. Yes, of course. Thank you. Their fans are the worst in America. And then in this rhetorical method, the same speaker says, yeah, actually, you Mets are just as bad. Your team has actually got the highest payroll in baseball, not the Yankees. Your team hasn't won the World Series since 1986. So, I mean, don't like, you know, throw darts at the Yankees. You are just as obnoxious as they are. Everything you say Yankees fans do, you do. Now, I don't like that as a rhetorical method. Because does anything good come out of that? You know, I love what Jonathan Haidt says in his book, The Righteous Mind. He says, people do change their minds, but not unless information comes to them in a non-threatening way. So if somebody's gotten us all riled up and then instantly changes it and starts attacking us personally, do we receive that? Well, probably not. But it's the method Paul uses here. And Paul uses often partly because it matches his personality. So he's done this thing that, you know, if you happen to be a public speaker, I kind of love reading through that because it's just awful and terrible. But the roles just, the words just roll along. And there is a weird thing in the middle of it. They disobey their parents. Like, wait, what? You know, I mean, these are really awful things. And then just disobey, yeah, whatever the case. You know, I mean, he is saying this, so it's all rolling off the tongue and getting everybody all upset. And then, 
chapter 2. Yeah, you, therefore, have no excuse. You who pass judgment on somebody else, for at whatever point you judge the others, you're condemning yourself. Because you who pass judgment do the same things. You do the same damn things. Now we know that God's judgment against those who do such things is based on truth. So when you, a mere man, pass judgment on them, and yet you do the same things, do you think God's not going to notice that? Or do you show contempt for the riches of God's kindness and grace and mercy and tolerance and patience, not realizing that God's kindness ought to lead you in the same direction? So he's saying to them, yeah, all those things, you do them too. And I've talked a lot about the work of James Hollis, the Jungian analyst, and particularly his books, The Middle Passage and Swamplands of the Soul. And Swamplands of the Soul has a section I just love. I've talked about it often, where he talks about three kinds of guilt, and the third he calls existential guilt. I've never liked the term particularly, but I like the concept. He says it's being open and honest enough with yourself that you eventually come to realize the parts of yourself that have always been there and are likely to always be there that cause you trouble because you do them time and again and again. This is why Nikos Kazakas said that by the time we're 50, we have the face we deserve. Because all of us are guilty of doing the same mistakes over and over and over. And so people will often say, are you aware you've done this? And it's actually a good thing to be able to say, yeah, actually, I've been doing that since I was, you know, uh, and I've never gotten rid of it. Because the best we can hope for as humans is to name those things we're never going to get a hold of. To name what our weakest points are, whatever they happen to be, whether it's an explosive temper or or telling things that are not true, or, uh, you know, as in my case, having to remind myself constantly it's all right to have an unexpressed thought, you know, speaking words that you really should not be speaking. Whatever it happens to be, it's been with you all along. It's better to own it. Because if you own it, you can lock it in the basement. Now, the truth is, it's going to get out of the basement as long as you're alive because you're human. And when it gets out of the basement, you have a job. The job is to recognize it got out of the basement and to stop it from doing damage as quickly as you possibly can and lock it in the basement again. That's about the best we can ever hope for. But if we can understand and accept that reality of ourselves that we, in fact, do the same things, we'll stop judging other people. We are all screwed up, every last one of us, just not in exactly the same way. And Paul is going to go ahead and proceed to show us how in our screw-ups, we can join with others and either become a cosmic benevolent force or we can become a cosmic malevolent force. What is it? Benevolent or malevolent? That is where we pick up next week. God, thank you for loving us as we are and for reminding us that judging, well, that's not our job. But yeah, we have to decide morally what's right and what's wrong. But judging individual other people, when we haven't walked a mile in their space, yeah, never a good thing.
God, strengthen us to know we're loved enough by you that we can also accept the parts of ourselves that are not so lovely. For this we pray in the name of Christ. Amen. As you listen to this teaching, we hope it was a reminder that the love of God is bigger, more inclusive, and filled with more grace than any of us can imagine. There is truly room for us all here. To learn more, go to envisioncommunitychurch.org or facebook.com forward slash envisioncommunitychurch. Thank you for joining us.